The school year in Canada has had a tragic start. Hamilton has been shocked by the stabbing death of 14-year-old Devin Selvey, who was attacked as his mother arrived to pick him up at school. She watched in horror as the tragedy unfolded. Devin tried to get in her car. She tried to chase what would be the murderers down the street, but instead she watched in horror as her son's life was taken. School board has issued this statement. The common theme I've been messaging is that we need to talk. And I know there's a range of feelings on social media from could the school have done something more to we love our school, we can't believe this happened. And what I continue to say to people is the school doesn't live in the isolation of the community. And that's what context is about this week, how the community we are creating is deeply affecting our young people. The senseless grief felt in Hamilton is a familiar lament with Aaron Cremeni, whose own son Carson was bullied to death in a British Columbia skate park just one week before he was to begin grade nine this fall. And both boys' deaths point to a dangerous escalation in school violence that all of us, but especially parents, are having to navigate. Bullying, substance abuse, and digital citizenship a way of behaving online, have increased the harm children can do to each other. And schools need all of us to do more. From the producers at 100 Huntley Street, here is grieving father Aaron Cremeni and his advice. Nobody called, nobody did anything. Um, boys, at least two boys snap, just filmed them on their cell phones and sent Snapchat out laughing about it. Having a day of anti-bullying and wearing a pink bracelet doesn't do anything when you see it in front of your eyes on a weekly basis and nobody says anything, nobody does anything, nobody, you know, and it's everybody. You can watch that full interview on next Tuesday's 100 Huntley Street and you'll hear more from Context on why and how hate is growing in Canada. We'll do that topic next week. But uh, first, we want to talk with uh, a pastor who knows firsthand on how this is affecting young people in Hamilton. Hamilton, Pastor, uh, I really appreciate you coming in. It's just super to have you with us. But you know firsthand what it is to um, be a youth at risk. Yeah. So I grew up originally in Jane and Finch. So when I grew up there, you were known, um, like the gang life was really something that you were involved in. If you weren't involved, you knew about it. You knew who was involved, you knew everything that was around. And that type of impact starts to shape how you begin to filter life. It shapes how your perspective is and how you see things, how you engage with other people. If I seen somebody that was from another neighborhood that wasn't from my neighborhood, immediately I become tense. And I think, okay, well, there's gonna be a problem here, regardless of where they're from because they weren't from my block. So that's the type of mentality you start to grow up with when you're coming from a gang infested area. And you now, Greg, as a pastor in Hamilton, this is a school you know, you know kids from there. What do they need from their adults? What they really need is a voice from that generation. A lot of young people are, are often thinking about what is it that people are thinking about them? 
whether it be their friends, but more so whether it be the adults that are around them. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be an adult that knows them directly. Sometimes it's indirect contact that they need. They need somebody that doesn't have that biased opinion. So sometimes if a mother speaks to their child, they expect the mother to say certain things. Like if a, if a young girl feels that she's ugly, her mom telling her that she's beautiful, she figures, well, of course you're gonna tell me I'm beautiful, you're my mom. But, but maybe it's coming, the waitress at the exactly. restaurant or the guy at the door needs exactly. to say, you look great today. Exactly, yeah. because that's out of their field of vision. All right, so what you're saying is our youth need a wisdom voice from every adult figure in their life? Yes, very much so. And how about the, the faith voice, the religious voice? Context is all about looking. Does God connect with these kind of crises? Where does the voice of God's love come into these young people? Well, I think it comes in just through that place of influence. Um, God is always looking to reach out to young people the same way he's looking to reach out to every single generation. And when you look throughout the scriptures, you'll find that the younger generation always were impacted by the previous generation before them. So to David, he had a Jonathan that was older than him that could speak into his life. Joshua had a Moses that could speak into his life. And the disciples had a Jesus that could speak into their life. And I think if people of faith were to position themselves intentionally to speak into the lives of young people and not just pray for them from behind the curtains, but actually get involved and engage with them, it changes everything. Okay, Pastor Greg, I'm so glad you're there in inner city Hamilton. We need dozens more like you coast to coast and thank you for telling us all to do our part. Thank you. Youth Pastor Gregory Williams of Hamilton Church of God uh, will stay in touch with how that community is healing. All right, well, stay with us because our look at the election and its related tone to bullying is coming up. Well, the gloves came off at the first English all-candidates debate. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and Liberal leader Justin Trudeau set the tone for the debate. Mr. Trudeau, you are a phony and you are a fraud and you do not deserve to govern this country. The role of a Prime Minister is to stand up for Canadians' jobs, to stand up for the public interest, and that's what I've done. Canada's party leaders verbally sparred more than they listened to each other. Your role on this stage tonight seems to be done more over the past four years than yes, any government in the history no, of Canada. No, that's not true. by more than half. Well, today on Context, something you don't hear enough of in all of that voice, understanding why some religious issues will sway the vote this election. We begin with a first-time exclusive here, our producer Susan Ponting with Cardinal Thomas Collins, Canada's servant to the Pope and our country's highest voice of the Catholic Church. Cardinal Collins is calling the current tone of our nation's political discourse bullying. Cardinal, tell me, why is it important to host a Catholic debate? Well, I think it's very important because, uh, for one thing, we're a third of the population. Uh, and also, this is a Catholic debate in the sense that themes from Catholic faith will be there. But also, it's really uh, people of faith, of many different faiths, also share these uh, positions which we share. And so I think the voice of faith needs to be heard uh, in the democratic conversation. After all, uh, people of faith make a disproportionate contribution to society. Uh, where people are sick, when people are homeless, where, who helps them? Who is there? Who has always been there from the start of our country? It's people motivated by faith. So I think it is not at all uh, inappropriate. 
that the questions that are deep in the heart and the minds of people of faith should be posed to the political leaders of our country. Mr. Singh, I want to ask you about Bill 21. Your campaign is about courage, but you have not shown the courage to fight Quebec's discriminatory law. It bars individuals who, like yourself, wear religious symbols from some provincial employment. It's probably pretty obvious to folks that I am obviously against Bill 21. Uh, it is something Cardinal, that how can Christians stay unified during an election period? Well, it's, it's by the very nature of things, politics deals with uh, what are often controversial issues, where people passionately hold diverse opinions on how to proceed as a country. Uh, I would hope that people also are united at a deeper level in terms of seek all seeking the common good, but the way to do it is often there's great disagreements. Uh, and so I think that what we need to do is to be is to learn in our society to be able to listen to others who disagree with us and to ask them, invite them to listen to us as we speak. We need to continue the conversation and to do so in a matter that is not giving up on our position, but is very firm and very strong and passionate, but which is respectful of the other person. And so I think we have to learn how to listen. That's not happening these days. And the balance we need to I think we'll be talking right about this more. You're doing nothing. It's a bullying spirit when the conversation is terminated by the chants of people who will not listen. Who want to drown out a person who is trying to present their opinion. Disagree, if you will, with the opinion, but express the disagreement. But to shut down the conversation is an act of bullying. And we well, want to open it up. And it also pertains to multi-faith and uh, inclusiveness in mm -hmm. Canada, which we're well, a secular country, yeah. but we're not a secular people. Oh, well, not at all. That's true. And I think that if we are really to be inclusive, it doesn't mean saying, you must not speak something that I don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, well, good heavens, what does that mean? That means that we know nobody speaks. You simply can say, stop. I don't want to hear your voice. Well. That's to shut down the conversation. I think a truly inclusive country, in the real sense of the term, in a fruitful sense, is one in which people listen attentively to different versions, different, different opinions, different ways of looking at reality, many facets to the diamond. And if we listen to others, we might learn something. Our leaders are important, and we live in a society that's maybe um, a lot less trusting Oh, I think that's true. And language that's inflammatory can be can do that. Once we once we push that, go past that line, then we're just hitting someone over the head with you know beating them, and that's not right. You can verbally uh, bludgeon someone, and that's not right. Mm. And we don't learn then. We don't learn. So and I think our leaders uh, deserve certainly political leaders or church leaders uh, need to be ready for criticism. But one would hope the criticism is uh, courteously expressed, recognizing the leader is also a human as well. Uh, you can't be yelling and screaming at another person. The, the leader is not a cardboard cutout. The leader is a person with a heart and a soul. Uh, but we, could, we should express our criticisms politely but firmly, or our compliments for that matter. But uh, So I think that has to be done. Mr. Singh, I want to ask you about Bill 21. Your campaign is about courage, but you have not shown the courage to fight Quebec's discriminatory law. It's probably pretty obvious to folks that I am obviously against Bill 21. Uh, it is something that hurts me, makes me feel sad. I think about all the times I grew up being told that I couldn't do things because of the way I looked. And I think about all the people in Canada that grow up being told they can't achieve more because of their identity or who they are. And I think about the people in Quebec right now 
that are being told just because they wear a hijab that they can't be a teacher, or if they wear a yarmulke, they can't be a judge, and that's hurtful and it's wrong. And it probably comes as no surprise that I'm opposed to laws that divide people. Well, unlike the federal medical assistance in dying bill, Quebec's Bill 21 is provincial, but it's playing a huge role in this election. The bill bans public servants from wearing religious symbols. And this big question for the election, will the next federal government intervene in a court challenge? Raheel Raza is the president for Council for Muslims Facing it Tomorrow. She joins me to talk about the bill and to discuss election issues important to Muslims. Raheel, only the Liberal Party has said they are going to consider challenging this bill. Do you think the federal party should do more against Bill C-21? Well, first of all, I don't believe that a government should in any way legislate or interfere in a faith community or an individual's wearing of religious symbols. I don't believe that that is the job of the government. But now that we have Bill C-21, and, you know, it's a provincial... Very popular in Quebec. 70% of Canadians well, reportedly support it. Exactly. And so the, the, there hasn't been enough debate and discussion about it. You know, whenever it has come up, even in the debate, they tend to deflect from it because it is a controversial topic. It is a taboo topic. It brings up issues that they don't want to talk about. You know, as a Canadian who is looking at these elections, I believe that there needs to be much more discussion and debate. It should be up front and center. It's not something that should be, you know, just one sentence and say whether they're going to vote against it or, or for it. Calgary recently tried to say, let's make this a game changer. Here's Mayor Nehad Nenshi. They passed a motion in Calgary City Council saying they are going to oppose Bill C-21. What a bold thing for a city, an Alberta city, to reach into provincial politics in Quebec, uh, saying, I've been really surprised at the lack of conversation around Bill 21 and what it really means. It's terrifying. It's flagrantly unconstitutional, unanimous motion at the city of Calgary. What does Bill 21 in Quebec do to religious freedoms for Canada, Raheel? Well, it is unconstitutional. He's right about that. Um, it is, uh, again, as I said, it is not part of a government mandate to decide whether or not people can wear religious symbols because then it tends to include everyone. But there is a bigger story behind this. Yes, and, what is you know, the bigger th story? Th there is a background, and this is why I said we need to discuss and debate this much more. We just don't take one topic out of context and not discuss it. What do you think so at the root the of this? the background of this is that Quebec has always called itself and been a distinct society, very proud of their heritage, which is a very good thing. And they opened their doors to immigrants about 10, 15 years ago, welcomed them in the hope that they would assimilate, integrate, many of them did, but some didn't. And then they came on the scene about 10 years ago or so, the niqab, which is the face covering. In my understanding, as a Muslim, Bill C-21 is not about the Yarmaluk, it's not about the Sikh head covering, it's not about the Christian cross. It is about the face covering. It has come out because of the niqab debate, which has not, again, been discussed openly in Canada. This was passed off as a religious symbol, when it's not. And it's not because I say so. So you say a niqab is a political symbol. Yes, it is very much a political symbol. And you don't want, and, and you think they, they, were, they tried to s just sweep it into all religious symbols. Well, it symbols. had to be, right? They couldn't just say, we don't want the niqab, so they had to bring in the others. So, you know, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now, one has to look at the backstory. One has to understand, you know, Bernier said during the debate that I want the face of Canada to look the same in 25 years. 
My fear is it's not even going to look the same in another five years. He's talking about 25 years. There are things that are changing, and there are people like the, the Quebecers who are worried about their heritage, who are worried about Canadian values. And let me mention that I sat with paper and pencil and notebook throughout the whole debate. You have been adamantly against the niqab in public. Yes, I have, because it is a security threat. It's an Islamist symbol. It is not a religious symbol. This was the problem. It's not even religious, not because I say so. Are you unified because as a Muslim community about the niqab? Of course we are not, because this is why the niqab has been pushed. There was the Supreme Court issue that came about. So, you know, there has been a train of events. Okay, any, we're, we're almost out of time. Yes. Any other issues that are unifying the Muslim vote in this election, or are you... Like, well, I can quickly tell yes. you that for me, there is no such thing as the Muslim vote. It has to be a Canadian vote. And that is how I vote with my conscience as a Canadian for the betterment of Canada. And I felt that none of the leaders talked about the larger issues that impact Canadians. This was all appeasement of the vote bank. It was all buzzwords, but there were things that were not discussed. It should have been education, youth, seniors, poverty. None of those were discussed in detail, and that is what I would have liked to have seen. Raheel Raza, Muslims Facing Tomorrow, you're a wonderful reminder of how to be a good citizen. Thank you so much for being with Context. Thank you for having me. Most people don't realize that in order for someone to go through that process, they actually have to go through a mandatory 10 days of counseling and they have to see two separate physicians. It's not just, you don't just go sign on the dotted line and it happens in five minutes. So I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to look at rules that are in place with our physicians. Green candidate there justifying how euthanasia is becoming more popular in Canada and a Quebec court has brought this difficult issue into the election campaign that many religious voters are concerned about. The evolution of medical assistance in dying, euthanasia or doctor assisted suicide. It's been legal now in Canada for three years, but now a Quebec Superior Court has ruled that the law for killing is still too restrictive. And the court ruled that the eligibility requirement for people facing foreseeable death is unconstitutional. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau says he will look to expand assisted dying. He's pledging to commission a panel to look at advanced requests and extending that right to mature minors and people with severe psychiatric disorders. So. Big issue to hit the election campaign. Alex Schattenberg is the executive director of the Euthanasia Provincial Coalition. Alex, this was a big issue in the French election debate. What does that mean for Canadians to finally see this come into election discussion? Well, the concern with the uh, Quebec French uh, uh, debate was the fact that uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau decided that he would announce that the uh, Liberal government would not be appealing the Quebec decision. And this is a great concern because the Quebec decision dealt with the question of whether or not someone is terminally ill would then qualify for euthanasia. And he said, we, uh, the Quebec court said that uh, you would not be required to be terminally ill. They struck down that part of the law. And uh, Mr. Trudeau said they would not be uh, appealing the decision. It's very hard to get accurate numbers in these last three and a half years that euthanasia has been legal. We have seen more than 10,000 Canadians access dying, self-killing. Um, am I correct on those numbers? Or Just help understand for us why it's so difficult to get actually the accurate number count. We know that there was more than 7,900 euthanasia deaths in Canada 
as of December 31st, 2018. And uh, there was 4,235 in 2018. So I'm assuming based on the numbers that there's probably been somewhere in the range of 12,000 as of this point of this interview uh, in Canada. Of all the deaths as of December 31st, 2018, six were assisted suicide. The rest were all euthanasia. The difference between that is that in euthanasia, the doctor lethally injects you, whereas in assisted suicide, you receive the lethal drugs and you take it yourself. So most of it is done by lethal injection by physicians or the nurse practitioners. We've also seen another issue of a lot of uh, medical practitioners being uh, pressured into being participating in this when they don't want anything to do with it. And so we've got quite a few calls from nurses, doctors, etc., who are very upset about the fact that they're being pressured to participate in an act that they consider absolutely wrong. Alex Schoenberg, we didn't expect it to become an election issue, but it is. Conscience rights and uh, access to dying. Canadians are used to their individual rights. This is the next frontier. I'll kill myself when I want to, and I'll involve whoever I need to in it. Uh, it's a very unusual issue to have hit the election campaign. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. We'll be back with more on religious issues shaping this election campaign after this. We will never allow a single inch of retreat from the hard-earned rights of women in this country. Not one inch. This is I am personally pro-life. And it is okay in this country to have a difference of opinion. Well, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer took a lot of flack for proclaiming his pro-life stance there. But here to discuss it are two who represent the millions of Canadians who do have a vote affected by the pro-life stand. Alyssa Globe is the co-founder of Right Now, a group focused on getting pro-life candidates elected. And Fatine Grzecki is founder of My Canada and the Cry Movement and also a great television host of The Fatine Show. Okay, first of all, tell me why... It is persistently the work of activists like you, and I need to tell our audience, millions of hits, millions of social media engagements have happened over the activism you both and your organizations are doing on pro-life in this campaign. Fatine, for you, it's the tip of an iceberg. What does pro-life represent in your activism? You know, well, Lorna, over the years, our organization through My Canada, that's our advocacy arm, we've met, we've had over 1,500 sit-down meetings with members of parliament and senators. And I've actually found that usually if somebody's pro-life, it's kind of a litmus test issue. If they're pro-life, they're usually pro-freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, pro-defend charitable status. They're almost always uh, fiscally conservative as well. And so I find if somebody's pro-life, they're usually on side on a lot of the other issues that the faith community cares about. And Alyssa, is that your strategy as well? You think pro-life is a tipping point or is it just pro-life for those babies in the womb that's important? I think it's both because right now, public policy doesn't reflect public opinion. And right now in Canada, we don't have any law on abortion and the majority of Canadians are against sex-selective abortion. They're against late-term abortion. So we really need to have that conversation and elect politicians who will represent us and actually bring forward this, these policies in Parliament. I want to bring up a map because I didn't realize how strategic you actually are in mobilizing your volunteers. This map, anything in a light color, represents a swing riding. Alyssa, tell us why you guys are going after swing ridings like you are. 
Well, because in the last federal election in 2015, we went from having 80 pro-life MPs to 40. So we lost half of our pro-life MPs and some by less than 100 votes. And so we realized that in order to be more strategic and to actually elect more pro-life politicians so we can pass this pro-life legislation, we needed to target those top 50 swing ridings that are currently held by pro-abortion MPs to replace them with pro-life ones. So this is a multi-year project. We started at the nomination level where pro-lifers absolutely make the difference between a candidate winning and losing at that grassroots level. And now we're in the final stages of that election process to recruit and train volunteers to actually go out and door knock and help get these guys elected. So 100 ridings targeted. Fateen, you've heard all the parties saying we're not going to bring in legislation. And, it, and some would say it's crazy to influence so much just on this issue. Why do you think that's the wrong opinion? Well, number one, because I think this is a litmus test issue. So as people of faith, we can say, okay, let's track with Alyssa and Scott, their organization, see who they're uh, getting behind, because these people are going to be great members of parliament on other issues as well. I'm all about the individual candidate in this riding, in this election. We're going riding by riding and saying, who are the ones that will really take a stand on important issues in moments that matter? Okay, and just how serious the Christian activism is. I think this is remarkable, both of you. I just, Fatine, I just want to put up a slide for the crowd because this Friday and Saturday, and some of these uh, programs air after this Friday and Saturday, but you've got the War Museum booked and you're calling hundreds together to just sit silently and they're going to pray for Canada. Alyssa, do you think it's going to be worthwhile? I think it's absolutely amazing. I think prayer and works go hand in hand. And so I think that what Fatine is doing is, is great because she's actively helping people get uh, elected by recruiting volunteers and she's praying and, and building up that, that voice. And I know that it will be effective for this election. All right, we wanted you to meet the two dynamic faces that are behind a large part of the pro-life movement that keeps coming up again and again in this federal election. Watch it with interest. We'll be back after this. Let's wrap things up with our blogger, Professor John Stackhouse, a Christian thought leader. He joins us from this uh, university there in Moncton, John. You've heard that there's a lot of gathering around the concept of let's vote pro-life. Is that a wise way for the Christian voter to cast their vote? Well, yes and no, Lorna. Yes, Christians should be pro-life, but of course we should be pro all of life. God cares about babies in the womb, and he cares about them when they come out, and he cares about moms, and he cares about dads. And so, yes, if we mean by pro-life, we're going to try to look at all of human flourishing and not just our own taxes and not just our own issues. That's a great thing. On the other hand, there's really not much encouragement about uh, anti-abortion politics uh, this time around. None of the major party leaders seem to want to come within a mile of supporting the idea of changing or actually giving us uh, abortion legislation. So I think uh, it's a wasted vote. And it was the first time we saw, in both of our memories, the Catholic Church holding in all candidates. It was the most widely attended of the election debates. Um, there really, though, isn't a way to say the Christian vote is going to go this way. Just as the Muslims said to us, there's not a block. There isn't a vote, is there? That's 
that one party can say, we've got the Christians nailed down in Canada? Oh, certainly not. No, uh, Christians have always voted uh, across part, uh, different party lines. Uh, Catholics tended to vote liberal, Protestants tended to vote conservative, but that's changed a lot in the last 20 years. And all the poll data that we have show that even evangelical Christians will vote for any one of the major parties. So I think that's one of the reasons why the party leaders don't appeal to Christians particularly, because they know at some level there isn't a block, there isn't a single way to vote as a Christian in this or any other election. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why all of them are continuing to decline coming onto Context. All the party leaders have not agreed yet to be on Context. Maybe in the next two weeks before the election, we'll see if that comes up. John, you've written four great blogs for us on election issues. Be sure to check out Professor John Stackhouse, our blogger at Context. Thanks for joining us, John. You always give us a lot to think about. And to all of you, thanks for watching Context. Thank you for your time. And do learn more at our website and at our Facebook page. Bye-bye then. See you next week.